0: What's the time? It's time to get ill. And what's the time? It's time to get ill. So what's the time? It's time to get ill. Now what's the time? It's time to get ill. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Illiteracy Podcast. I'm your host, Tim Benson, a senior policy analyst at the Heartland Institute, a national free market think tank. Uh, this is episode 118, 119, 120, something like that of the podcast. I never remember the uh, the episode numbers. Sorry about that, guys. But um, but yeah, so we're not a very new podcast anymore. But for those of you just tuning tuning in for the first time, basically what we do here on the podcast is I invite an author on to discuss a book of theirs that's been uh, newly published or recently published. And, uh, you know, have a discussion about that. hopefully at the end of the podcast or, you know, even in the middle of the podcast, if you get your druthers about you you go ahead and uh, purchase the book yourself and give it a read. So if you like this podcast, please consider giving Illiteracy a five-star review at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to this show, and also by sharing with your friends, as that's the uh, best way to support programming like this. And my guest today is Dr. William Doyle, and Dr. Doyle is Professor Emeritus of History and a Senior Research Fellow at the University of Bristol, and is also a Fellow of the British Academy. His books include The Old European Order, 1660-1800, to the Oxford History of the French Revolution, Venality, The Sale of Offices in 18th-Century France, Jansenism, Catholic Resistance to Authority from the Reformation to the French Revolution, and Aristocracy and Its Enemies in the Age of Revolution. And lastly, he is the author of Napoleon A Peace, How to End a Revolution, which was originally published last October by Reaction Books, and is the book we will be discussing today. So, uh, Dr. Doyle, thank you very, very much for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it my pleasure so uh intro question that you know i ask everybody you know what uh what made you want to write this
1: book what was what was the well, genesis of it well for years and years i avoided napoleon because uh, like most historians <laughs> who focus on the revolution you tend to think that uh, napoleon is something which is hostile to the whole thing and and uh and and, and uh, you can cut off at 1799 and, and, and that's a different world and so on. Mm-hmm. But over the years, I got more and more drawn into it. I mean, one of my early books was called Origins of the French Revolution. And now I've been writing about the ending of the French Revolution by Napoleon. And uh, um, it, it seemed a, 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 something worth exploring.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so essentially Napoleon... Well, he ends the revolution, but he sort of synthesizes
1: it with monarchy. Oh, yes. I mean, Napoleon, Napoleon always takes the line. I am a son of the revolution. He knew that he could not have done what he'd done without the revolution, because uh, under the old regime, okay, he would he would have been an officer, but he would never have risen above the middle ranks of the army and never had the opportunities which the revolution gave him. Mm -hmm. So that's fine. But uh, uh, he said later on, "You know, when I actually took power in seventeen ninety nine um the revolution was not over um it hadn't none of the problems that it had thrown up had been resolved and uh, uh, what I tried to do uh, is is resolve them and 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 the the book is about the ways in which Napoleon confronts the problems bequeathed by the revolution and solves them uh or most of them anyway uh." for a time some mm-hmm. of them go on but nevertheless you know uh, he he's able to put the revolution more or less behind him um, and behind france and move on to uh, uh, napoleonic things
0: mm-hmm. is it fair to say that when he is in uh, the, the very end of the 18th century when he's uh, maneuvering himself into power that the revolution is um, failing in a lot of ways and he recognizes that and uh that's another i mean obviously for his own personal vanity and ambition which you know sort of knows no bounds but um but he sort of recognizes that too and and thinks that the uh really the only way to save the revolution at this point is for him to take control of france
1: well he says when he he writes a letter to Talleyrand, i think in 1797 and he said look the revolution has destroyed Uh, An enormous amount of things, but it's not built anything solid in the place. And and it won't do until the problems which it has created uh, are solved. Mm -hmm. Um, And and those problems, there are are three great problems, I think, uh, that the revolution actually creates Um, The the first one is religion. Undoubtedly, it's fundamental. It it tears the country apart. The uh, the attempt to nationalize religion from 1790 onwards. Um, The the, the second one is the question of monarchy. uh, The the executive of the country, what sort of executive are you going to have? Can you have a country without a single executive, um, a, a king? Uh, in in effect. And the third one is the fact that the country's been at war since 1792 and uh, and it's unresolved. Now, those three problems have not been solved over the 10 years or so of the revolution. They're still there. The whole question of uh, when Napoleon comes to power, the Pope uh, has just died Uh, in French captivity, and it's not sure there's ever going to be another pope. That's that's the extent of the quarrel between the revolution and religion. The war is still going on, and it's not going particularly well in 1799. Uh, Part of it is actually the result of Napoleon's expedition to Egypt, but that's a a, (laughs) a side issue there. And then the whole question is, you know, who who is qualified to give orders and actually run the state? Those three questions are not resolved in 1799, and it takes Napoleon a few years to actually resolve them.
0: Mm-hmm. It, you start the uh, book off uh, in the introduction, or maybe it's the preface, I can't remember. I think it's the introduction, uh, with a quote uh, from Sir Matthew Millay. Uh, basically, so long as Napoleon was not making war, his prodigious yeah. activity was entirely directed within. It was yeah. peace that he shown with the purest brightness and through, it and through his rarest qualities.
1: Yes. I mean, this, this is a period, when you think of it, Napoleon has not only fought one battle between 1799 and 1805. Uh, so this is a period when he is actually at peace. And he nearly lost that battle, too, the Battle of Marengo. So you know, this is a period when he is concentrating above all on internal matters on, 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 on and, and pulling the state together, as it were and uh, I've never actually been much interested in Napoleon as a soldier, although most people are what what interests me when you, when you look at Napoleon is the sheer ability of the man, the sheer ability to concentrate his mind on mm-hmm. dealing with dealing with any sort of problem that comes up and uh, and and this is what he's doing in that period of, of, of relative peace between between 1799 and uh, and 1803
0: yeah it's interesting how many of his contemporaries uh, remark on his on his stamina uh not so yeah. much as his physical stamina but his but his mental stamina uh Absolutely. The, the amount of uh just prodigious energy he uh, brought forth to uh, really, any undertaking, he was, you know, yeah. left for for undertaking. You
1: know, no, that's absolutely right. I mean, <laughs> his ability to keep different balls in the air all the time is really very impressive. And and uh, whatever he focuses on for the moment, it's laser-like. And then he can switch the laser and deal with something else at the same time. It's it's uh, he is an extraordinarily able man.
0: Yeah, yeah. So. Uh, oh, I should uh, – I've already remarked to Dr. Doyle about this, but for those of you listening out there, just a little uh, brief uh, segue here. Uh, my neighbor across the street is <laughs> decided to uh, start roofing or re-roofing I his really house. I can't hear anything. Can't Can hear anything? Say... All right, well, just nope. in case. So nope. if you guys hear any nail guns or hammers or anything like that, yeah, uh, sure. so that's in the background. So uh, like I said, okay. I'll, I'll try to keep it quiet. But anyway um, – all right, so it all starts off really we kind of have Admiral Sir Sidney Smith to uh, right. thank <laughs> uh, for yes. for all of this going forward. So, uh, how how did uh, Admiral Smith allow allow Napoleon to seize his destiny?
1: Well, the whole the whole conduct of, of Sidney Smith is very interesting. I mean, Sidney Smith is 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 a francophile. He likes France, he speaks absolutely perfect French. Um, And in fact, he spent the last years of his life, he's actually buried in Paris. Uh, So, you know, he he feels that uh, uh, whatever happens, um, France is going to benefit, because first of all, you know, if if Napoleon escapes from Egypt, well, uh, the British fleet might well catch him. And they were unlucky not to do so at that particular time. But if he gets to France, Smith calculates, well, maybe, you know, that will result in civil war. Um, and uh, the the Bourbons whom he he really uh, supports uh, will then benefit from that. So in in some ways, you know, it's it's not that uh, Sidney Smith inadvertently allows Napoleon to escape by sending him uh, newspaper reports of French defeats. Uh, he actually thinks it might be a very good thing if Napoleon uh, escapes from Egypt because uh, he doesn't think it's going to work out well, and that's a. A huge miscalculation, obviously, on on Smith's part. Uh,
0: Do you is do you think that's one of history's biggest miscalculations, like with the uh, with the Germans (laughs) sending Lenin back (laughs) back to uh, St.
1: Petersburg? Yeah, that's (laughs) That's a good yeah, that's a good (laughs) parallel. I think actually, yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 All right. Um,
0: Okay. So, well, for him, for Napoleon to be at peace, he obviously has to make peace. So, how does he? How does Napoleon uh, seize power and how do we get to the the peace of Amiens, which will uh, end uh, the basically the Revolutionary War period, the French Revolutionary War period after uh, essentially 10 years of uh, a decade of fighting?
1: Yes, well, he realized the first priority is actually to make peace, to bring peace about, to Mm -hmm. end the war. Um, And uh, he does that by... um, Defeating the Austrians, um, he defeats the Marengo. Uh, uh, as I say, he was extremely lucky; uh, he wasn't defeated there, and extremely lucky that the Austrians decided that they had been defeated when their army was still intact and, and rather larger than his. So there's a bit of luck involved there. Although the real winner of that war is Morrow, in fact, uh, in, in, in the Battle of Horn Linden um, uh, six months later. Uh, when the Austrians realise they are actually beaten. So that's the Austrians dealt with, partly by Napoleon, more by Morrow, in fact. And then there's this, it, it, uh, really, it's a coincidence, because although the British are still in the field there, very much so, um, they're war-weary, um, and there's a crisis in the British government. The, the British uh, First Minister, Pitt, has made a promise to the uh, Irish that he will... Um, support Catholic emancipation uh, as, a, as, a, as a quid pro quo for uniting the two kingdoms under, in, under, under one parliament. But the king won't do it. He says it's against his oath. Um, and uh, Pitt therefore feels obliged to resign. And it's the, it's the resignation of Pitt which opens the way for making peace with Great Britain, as, as, as well as uh, peace with Austria. So there's there's a huge element of coincidence and luck there in in, the in the way uh, the British make peace. But anyway, they do. And and so that Napoleon is able um, in the spring of of, of 1802 to celebrate uh, pacifying the whole of Europe and and France being at peace with uh, with all its former enemies.
0: Yeah. And what does peace mean, uh, not just for for Napoleon, but uh, but for France itself? You know, for France that had, like I said, well, again, been a, it, been a it, war it, for a decade.
1: Yeah, it, it means it, it, you you can, to some extent, dismantle the war economy, dismantle the 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 machinery of conscription, particularly. You know, you can cut down the size of the armies, and and uh, and uh, you, you can, they hopefully, cut down the 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 burden of taxation, which is mm-hmm. which has been imposed by the war. Uh, there's a great, huge war weariness, and there was a, a lot of celebration when uh, uh, peace had come, especially when it's peace with victory. Right. Uh, that's the thing, you know. Not only are we at peace, we've won. Right. And and, and certainly uh, the French had won at that particular moment. Yeah. Uh, did he? Did the, uh, did
0: Bonaparte? Did he consider uh, the Amiens peace to be a short-term? expedient or did he did he expect a long-term peace what uh do we know yeah, that, I have, have any idea what uh what he was thinking
1: that's the difficult thing in some ways it's a breather mm-hmm. um and he actually says at one point to one of his uh confidants you know um sooner or later we'll uh war will break out again um and um, I won't get blamed for it, but, but uh, uh, nevertheless, you know, uh, I'm, I'm I'm ready for it. I and mean, of course, he loved fighting. I mean, this is the thing about Napoleon. Yeah. <laughs> uh, he really loved uh, uh, war. Yeah, I mean, he was pretty uh,
0: good at it, you know. So. Yeah,
1: absolutely, yeah. <laughs>
0: absolutely. <laughs> anyway, okay, so uh, moving on um, to the. Dealing with the church, the Catholic Church, and yes, if you could yes. talk a, a bit about the deterioration of the Revolution's relationship with with the church and with Christianity yeah. as a whole, that this is, um, you write that it's essentially the oldest and deepest wound inflicted on France by the Revolution, and yeah. by the end of the century, Napoleon uh, sort of recognizes that the religious system uh, situation uh, is. Probably the most pressing domestic
1: problem facing the revolution. Oh, undoubtedly. Undoubtedly it is. I mean, it, it starts off by the attempt by the revolutionaries to, as it were, nationalize the church by cutting out. Papal power, uh, the, the, the pope in many the pope is a foreign prince. I mean, he's, he's, he's not just uh, um, the, the high priest of the Catholic Church. I mean, he, he's a he's a secular ruler of much of Italy. Um, in the 18th century. And uh, it's felt that uh, he is a foreign prince and he should have no jurisdiction inside France. Um, And uh, the civil constitution of the clergy, which is uh, passed in in, in 1790, uh, cuts out the Pope. The problem is the Pope uh, refuses to recognize what's been done. um, And this faces all Catholics with a problem, basically. Uh, because the, the the Pope says any priest, um, any person in holy orders who um, accepts the civil constitution of the clergy is deprived of their priestly powers. Now, the problem in that case is uh, how on earth do faithful catholics get the sacraments because only a priest can 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 confer the sacraments only a priest can marry only a priest can hear confession only a priest can legitimately uh, give extreme unction and so on so you, you it, it polarizes the whole of france if you if you if you recognize the the civil constitution of the clergy—you you, you are rejecting the authority of the pope, and you're rejecting the authority by which he deprives uh, 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 priests accepting the civil constitution of um, of their priestly powers. Now, this and and, and the, the revolutionaries take the line, you know, that this is this is a matter of obedience to the law of the nation. Uh, the uh, civil constitution has passed, it's, it's a law, um, and those who reject it are not just uh, uh, doing this on grounds of conscience, they are flouting the law. Uh, and, and so the, the, the country is completely polarised, and, and more and more, uh, what happened, and, and, and well, b- before that, I mean, the, the person who, who is uh, Uh, immediately uh, confronted with the the most serious of these problems is the very devout king. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's, it's the religious question which finally impels the king to try and leave Paris in the flight to Varennes in 1791. And this opens up the whole question of royalty, the whole question of monarchy, the whole question of, of, of whether or not France should move towards being a republic. And the, and the church and the religion are all bound up in that. Mm-hmm. And through much of the 90s, the Catholic Church is a sort of center of counter-revolution, center of royalism, even after the king is executed. The king becomes a, a religious martyr, in, in effect. Um, and, and the country continues p- polarized in that way, right down to 1799. And as I say, the ultimate thing comes when in in, in the end of the 1790s, uh, the Pope himself is captured, taken back to France, mm-hmm. dies on French territory. And when Napoleon comes to power, there is no Pope.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's Pius VI for those. Keeping, yeah, that's right. Keeping score at home. Um,
1: yeah.
0: So. He finally gets uh, a concordat with the church in July of 1801. Yes. what uh, what does the what does the concordat uh, say
1: uh, and um, well in, in uh, many ways it it gets the church it gets the new pope who was elected in the spring of, of, of seventeen uh, uh, the the spring of eighteen hundred. Uh, gets, the new pope more or less agrees to nearly everything that the civil constitution of the clergy had tried to impose way back in 1790. Uh, the only thing he doesn't agree to, and, and Napoleon doesn't agree to it either, is is the element of election which had been there in the civil constitution of the clergy um, under the Concordat, the French government. Uh, actually decides who the clergy are going to be, either by appointing the bishops or by through bishops they've appointed, uh, uh, verifying the powers of of a lower clergy uh, as well. So it's in many ways it's a surrender by the um, mm-hmm. by the Catholic Church. I mean, the, the most important thing that they brought up when the negotiations is the fact that the lands of the church had been nationalized. And, and confiscated by the state at the beginning of the 1790s. And the Pope says, "All right, well, let's negotiate, but let's. Uh, what about these lands? Should the lands of the church? Can we have our lands back?" And um, Napoleon says, "No. If you if you want to raise that one, well, the deal's off. You know, you have got to accept the loss of those lands, many of which have been sold off. We distributed everything else like that. You can't undo that settlement."
0: Does he does uh Does he not give the uh, the unsold lands so the lands that have been seized but not yet sold does doesn't he give those back to the church Some
1: of those some yeah of, some yeah. of those go back certainly but but uh, generally speaking you know mm-hmm. uh, uh, those who have bought church lands the confiscated church lands have invested in the work of the sure. revolution you can't undo that right So um
0: so what effect uh the broader question what effect did the revolution uh, the French Revolution have on the church, not just, not just in France, but
1: uh, throughout Europe and well, well, uh, globally. Well, it's interesting because uh, the problem Napoleon faces domestically is that most of the people who are quite happy to see him in power and want him in power uh, are very hostile to the church. They say, look, the church has been at the heart of counter-revolution for a decade or so uh, it's it's a, a deep enemy of everything that we've done in this country during this time, and and at the heart of that lies the 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 power of the papacy and so on. Mm. Napoleon says to them, "Look, we cannot do any sort of deal about the church without doing a deal with the pope. We've got to work with the pope." And there again, that's Napoleon's steely realism about what needs to be done. And he has to force it through. And he says it's the most difficult thing he ever did, in fact, to try and force that concordat through and and, and get uh, the French elites to uh, accept it. But what it does, paradoxically, uh, because he um, does this deal, says it can only be done with the Pope, it actually increases the authority of the Pope over the Catholic Church. And that's something... uh, the whole of the Catholic Church, not just in France, you know, it acknowledges the power of the Pope to depose bishops and things like that, which had never been acknowledged before. Um, so, actually, the, the sort of um, uh, militant Catholicism of early 19th century um, uh, finds its roots in many ways in the way Napoleon decides to uh, negotiate the restoration of the altars directly with the Pope.
0: Mm-hmm. And Napoleon's not a Believer by any stretch of the imagination,
1: he's uh, no, no. Yeah. I mean, he, he says he said, "Oh well, as a god, I'm sure there is," but uh, uh, he's he's not uh, he's not a believer in that sense. But he, right. he you know, he goes through the through the the rituals, the motions, yeah. Uh, yeah, that's yeah. right. Of what of what's expected of him, right, right, right.
0: Yeah, okay. Um, so moving on, uh, if we could talk a little bit about the the social divisions that were established, uh by the revolution, by the overthrow of the monarchy, and then by the execution of Louis XVI, which a lot of people, many people in France, many revolutionaries even, still had a uh, uh, positive opinion of.
1: Yeah, and this is is the real problem. People cannot really see how um, a, a country the size of France can be ruled except by some sort of monarchy, some sort of powerful central executive. Uh, everyone feels that's necessary. Uh, uh, and and um, all the thinkers of the 18th century said you can have republics, but they've got, they can only be small. Mm-hmm. You can't have a large republic. So there's that to start with. Secondly, uh, the fact that the, the, the actual French republic that comes into being after the overthrow of the monarchy is born in a time of bloodshed. It's born uh, within weeks of the September massacres of of 1792. And then the republic only survives, uh, really, the first challenge to its existence uh, with the terror in um, in, in 1793 to 4. So republicanism is associated fundamentally with terror. Um, And Napoleon says, looking back one of the many things he says when he's on centurina looking back on his life he says you know it was terror that destroyed the republic mm. uh, because of the way it, the republic was born in terror and people said can you have a republic without terror uh, well, well, the only ch- uh, the only uh, example you see of it is is what's happened in france and there you you certainly had a, a republic born in terror sure
0: it yeah, was he say something uh, the uh, blood uh victims blood uh has no roots or uh yes, something that's right. along the that's, right yeah.
1: yes that's right that's yeah. right yeah
0: yeah so most of the citizens uh so eventually you know getting further down the line there's going to be uh, a vote i mean it's you know maybe i don't know if rigged is the right word but it, but it's uh pretty much in the bag from the beginning but uh uh most so there's going to be a vote to vote Napoleon consul for life so essentially Yes King yes uh, so most of the citizens who vote for him for consul for life uh, really they believe that um, through Napoleon that they're gonna they're bringing back the monarchical system but really yeah. but really they're bringing back uh, stability and
1: and uh, rest and an end to No, absolutely yeah. right, Yes. Yeah, yes. The, so the, the, they that's that, that's what they're voting for. They're the, voting for stability and order yeah. and an end to the disorder of 10 years of revolution. Yeah. And
0: Napoleon himself uh hated disorder and he was extremely right. extremely fearful of popular uprisings and partially that's due to you know what he had witnessed uh with his own eyes during the revolution um talk a little bit about the the lawlessness of the revolutionary period and how and how napoleon returned order and stability to france
1: yeah the really the real problem is when the when the, the old regime is destroyed the old regime system of policing is also destroyed uh you don't have any real um uh organization of policing or justice. And and, and when uh, <clears throat> attempts are made to institute these things, they're very half-hearted, very, very difficult to, to put in place. Um, and uh, you can't even, uh, at the early stages anyway, use uh, the armed forces to do that, because the armed forces, first of all, <laughs> in the early years, are not reliable at all. And then they are Involved in uh, on the frontiers uh, defending the, the young republic. So, what you don't have is any clear system of authority and policing throughout much of the, the decade. Um, and uh, that leads to huge amounts of, of lawlessness. And, and some of that lawlessness uh, uh, takes the form of really, of counter-revolution, in in effect. Uh, It's a very blurred frontier between between, uh, uh, sheer criminality and counter-revolution. And and, uh, uh, the the, the problem confronting Napoleon is is how to restore that sort of order. Mm -hmm. Should we...
0: uh... I know it's called the French Revolution but uh, how much of uh should we consider it uh, uh a civil war by in any sense I mean um, so I, know, uh, I mean I know like say the American Revolution um obviously uh you know it's us against the British but there's a lot there's uh especially in the southern states there's a lot of uh you know, American on American uh, yes. battles and that yeah. sort of thing. A lot of violence, a lot of reprisals and yeah. Uh, yeah. that sort of thing. How much? Uh, how much should we think of the French Revolution as um, as some sort of civil war?
1: Oh yes, you must. You must. It, it, it absolutely is. And and I mean, the terror um, is is actually the mopping up of a civil war, most of mm-hmm. it, most of the victims of the terror um, are out in the provinces and they've been involved in what's called the Federalist Revolt of 1793. Um, and uh, most of those victims are people who, are being, who have been on the wrong side, yeah. who have been defeated. And, and, and terror is, the, is the, uh, uh, the instrument by which they're punished. Yeah. So, yeah, the, the, the country is polarized by a civil war. There's absolutely no doubt for, for most of that decade. And uh, well, one of Napoleon's key aims is actually to try and reconcile, to, to, to bring the opposed sides together so far as he can by saying, look, you know, um, uh, all I ask of you is you don't need to give up your principles in some ways. But as long as you back me, um, then that's fine and, and, and I will back you.
0: Mm-hmm. So how much credit should we give Napoleon during this period for, uh, I mean, you know, outside of what he's going to do uh, the rest of his career as, as consul and, and emperor, yeah. Uh, yeah. but how much uh, credit should we give him for, um, for returning for, to France some sort of uh, normalcy and uh, sort of dissipating all the, uh, the tensions of, of the revolution?
1: Absolutely. I mean, so he says at one point, you know, um, all the battles that I've won will be forgotten. This is this is this is a bit extra, extreme him to say that all the battles that I've won will be forgotten because I lost Waterloo. But the thing I'll always be remembered for is my code of law. Mm. Uh, and he puts this emphasis on the law all the time. I restored, you know, legality. I restored. Um, uh, reliable systems of uh, legal systems, and, and so on. Um, and he says that that will be my greatest memory. And in many ways, it's it's one of his uh, most enduring legacies. When you look at the influence of the of, of the civil code on on the law codes of of, of many European countries and areas uh, right to this day.
0: Mm-hmm. And he uh, he literally remade the map of Europe. Yes. Oh time. yes.
1: Yes, that's
0: right. Yeah. yeah. Are you, uh, it, it's, <laughs> uh, I know you're not a Napoleon biographer, um, but uh, are you, there seems to be the Napoleon biographer guys, they tend to either fall into the, God, Napoleon is terrible camp, or yeah. like, uh, or like Andrew Roberts is like, eh, you know, Napoleon wasn't, you know, that bad and, and, you know, a lot of positives. And, you know, I know Churchill, I think, had a, a bust of, either a bust or a painting of Napoleon yeah. Uh, in his yeah. office at, at number 10. Uh, so uh, overall, <laughs> uh, <laughs> how, what sh- how should we how should we feel about uh, about Napoleon?
1: <laughs> well, I mean, say he has enduring legacies, there's no mm-hmm. doubt in, in, in all sorts of ways in which the French state is organized, in which the uh, uh, the map of Europe is uh, is uh, uh, configured uh, as well undoubtedly and uh, uh, the whole of the 19th century looks back to Napoleon and says either you know god that was great or never again mm-hmm. uh, either way you know uh, he, he haunts the whole of the 19th century really and uh, uh, until the first world war yeah. in, in many ways I think Yeah,
0: there's something <sighs> for a despot uh, maybe he's not a despot, but I mean, <laughs> there's some sort of charm <laughs> to Napoleon in a way. I don't, you know, there's oh, yeah. uh, he's uh, um, probably the reason. I mean, not beyond his his world historical importance, in which he's probably one of the five or ten most important human beings maybe to to astride the earth. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, there's something to his personality uh, that makes him uh eminently uh, readable <laughs> you know what i mean yes. like yeah. so oh, i yeah. think i think that's part of the reason why there's just so many books about napoleon
1: yeah i mean he uh, he, he was very very crisp at expressing himself remember mm-hmm. most of the documents we've got about napoleon were dictated yeah. he didn't write them he just he, he just uh, said to his um secretaries write and he would walk up and down and dictate, you know, this lucid, clear prose, which is uh, an enormous advantage to uh, anyone's historical reputation if they express themselves clearly and uh, succinctly and convincingly as well. And he also personally, it's perfectly clear, he could really turn on the charm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, uh, lots of people said so. Um, uh, he would smile at people and said, what a wonderful smile he had, everyone said, Um but he could just turn it off again because he was so much in control of himself all mm-hmm. the time.
0: Mm-hmm. Oh, uh, one more thing. What was uh, what was international opinion uh, at the time? What was what was the international opinion like at the time Napoleon accomplished inside France? What were people saying about uh, you know that period, uh, the turn of the century, you know, uh, the Peace of Amiens, and then um, basically restoring order and ending the well, revolution and all that? What
1: what what, well, what
0: were what was the opinion of him like at the time?
1: Oh, people said, you know, how marvellous uh, uh, peace has been restored to Europe and it's been restored by uh, a person of absolutely superior uh, talents and, and so on. And uh, uh, <laughs> everyone welcomed the return of peace. I think that's tr- that, that's absolutely true. Um, but the worry was, you know, how long will it last? Mm. 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 Okay.
0: Well, it doesn't last very long. Oh, <laughs> no. no uh, and uh, um, is that more Napoleon's fault? Uh, or is there uh, who's really to blame there for for breaking the very short lived uh, piece? Well,
1: it's very controversial as to whether the uh, the British or, or, or the French actually uh, broke the peace of Amiens. Now, technically speaking, I think it's the British who break it because they. They uh, they refuse to evacuate Malta, um, which has been a, a problem even when they, the the peace peace was being negotiated, because they fear that uh, Napoleon will want to take Malta and then renew his uh, uh, advances on Egypt and so on, and they mm-hmm. they also see. Uh, the various advances in 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 french influence in in switzerland and in the low countries and so on as evidence that napoleon is not satisfied and it is true that he's never satisfied with any deal he does right. you know whenever whenever napoleon makes a deal um people may regard that as final but he regards it as, as uh, <laughs> the next uh, negotiating ploy right. in various right. ways right yeah it's amazing right. how throughout history how many
0: uh, Little tiny pieces of of territory are the pretext for,
1: for oh yeah for oh, massive yeah. wars you know so um, so anyway technically uh, it's the Brits uh, who who break the 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 deal uh, but in fact you know these advances these attempts to uh, to uh, uh, increase French power in as I say in Italy and, and and in Switzerland and in the Low Countries the French are not to, uh, observing the spirit of that piece any more than the British are as well. So it's it's only a, a technicality. You can you, you can see um, over the spring of um, of, of, uh, of 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 1803 that Napoleon is getting more and more annoyed and, and because the Brits won't do what he wants.
0: Yeah, perfidious Albion. Yeah, yeah.
1: Oh, of course.
0: <laughs> oh,
1: <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, Perfect.
0: Yeah. yeah a well earned reputation right. <laughs> <laughs> uh all right well uh end question again something i normally uh ask everybody that comes on here uh before we go is um you know what would you like the audience to get out of this book or or what's the what's the one thing you'd want them uh, a reader to take
1: away from having read it seeing beyond the general I think, seeing beyond the uh, uh, one of the most successful generals in history, seeing beyond the military side of it. That's why it's called Napoleon at Peace. It's meant to sort of emphasize uh, how much more there is to do about Napoleon. Um, The the thing we haven't talked about, though, the thing that should be mentioned, is the great failure, uh, which I use as an epilogue of the book, the failure to... uh, to subdue the the Black Rebellion in 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 Saint Domingue. Oh sure, we can talk about that for. Yeah, it, 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 it is it, it's Napoleon's first great failure, in fact. Um, and uh, he he reverses the revolutionary um, uh, abolition of slavery. Um, he feels that military force will be enough to actually subdue. Um, Saint-Domingue and, and bring it back to the sort of the slave-based prosperity which it had had before 1789. Uh, but it just didn't work at all. You know, the uh, massive force which he which he assembled uh, just uh, dribbled away and was wasted by Black Rebellion, by and his disease, and so on. And um, the United States owes a lot to that. Because, yeah, yeah uh, <laughs> absolutely. <The> Louisiana Territory. <laughs> because yeah. uh, once it's clear that uh, Saint-Domingue is not going to be subjected, then it's not much use to Napoleon to have uh, a nearby source of support uh, in, in Louisiana. And, and it, it's, it's, once it's clear that the, the attempt to subdue the island has, 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 uh, has, has failed, he's then very happy to, to close with Jefferson and, mm. uh, and sell Louisiana.
0: Yeah, there's actually, I was literally uh, just reading another book, um, uh, it's on the uh, sort of the administration of the Jefferson and Madison and, and James Monroe. Yeah, uh, but, yeah there's a point, And they were talking about that, the, the, the purchase negotiations. And they yes. have the deal. And Monroe, James Monroe, who will be the fifth president of the United States, is uh, uh, one of the people in France uh, working on yes. the deal. And <laughs> and he's getting word that well Napoleon makes the deal... And then so he, uh, you know, sends word off to Jefferson. And then a little bit later, he's hearing all these rumors that, you know, or uh, Talleyrand comes to him and says, uh, you know, um, he he might want to call the deal off, <laughs> blah, blah, blah. And uh, so he's, Napoleon's having second thoughts about, you know, giving up all this land. And basically Monroe has to write Jefferson and be like, hey, you have to get this uh, passed, this treaty uh, passed yeah. as soon as you can or else because I don't know if Napoleon's going to. Hold on, because there was a question of constitutionality with the the purchase. The Jefferson wasn't sure if he had to first get a, a constitutional amendment uh, uh, ratified before he had the authority to uh, sign the yeah. treaty and all that. And Monroe, Monroe was just like, no, just just do it before he, yeah. <laughs> before the mercurial Napoleon uh, changes his mind here because he's he's yeah. he's going back and forth every day on this.
1: Well, that's right. Yeah, he he want, he, he does say, doesn't he? I'm going to give up Louisiana. I don't want to do it, but. Yeah. Uh, I feel I have to do
0: it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Anyway.
1: Okay. Um.
0: All right. Uh. Like I said, now that's in, I'm not sure if you answered the question of what's the uh the one thing you'd want. Oh, yeah, you did about the uh, looking beyond images. Yeah, just, just, right, right.
1: just take your eyes off the battlefield. Yes. Field. Right. Basically, yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. All right. Well.
0: Um. Before we go, is there uh anything else you want to plug while we were here? Any uh any appearances or. Anything else you got going on that you're working on coming up or anything no, no, like that?
1: I, I think not. I think not. I've just heard that uh, that the the, the the Franco-British Society has given the Booker Prize, which oh, is nice. nice. Very nice. So, Congratulations. Yeah. <laughs> but that's, 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 that's the, the, the most important thing in my mind at this moment. <laughs> All
0: right. Great. Well, again, uh, the book is Napoleon at Peace, How to End a Revolution – a uh, very very interesting uh, little book um it's uh, a, on an aspect of Napoleon i'm sure most people don't really read about like you said i'm sure they it's mostly the the battles and the the wars yeah. and Austerlitz and Jena and all that sort of stuff but um, oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah uh but um, but yeah it's a fascinating little book uh on how uh, Napoleon really um uh brought uh normality <laughs> back to france and uh and ended the revolution on a uh i guess on a positive note or uh you know or at least it did it saved the revolution from ending in in failure complete failure mm-hmm. and uh it's just a fascinating little book and uh very well written and you should also other than this book you should definitely go out and if you're listening uh get the oxford history of the French Revolution to uh, I read that a long, long time ago, and that's a, a fantastic book. On the, maybe, maybe the best one on the on the French Revolution. It's up there. It's pretty good. Um, so check that one out. And yeah, make sure you get Napoleon at Peace: How to End a Revolution. Again, the author is Dr. William Doyle. And Dr. Doyle, thank you very, very much for coming on the podcast and discussing the book with me. And uh, and also thank you for you know taking the time to to write it so that uh, we can all out there enjoy it. So we appreciate the uh, the fruit of your labors. Thank you. All right, no problem. And again, if you like this podcast, please consider leaving us a five-star review and sharing with your friends. And if you have books or uh, you'd like to discuss with us on the podcast or any questions, comments, or whatever, you can uh, reach out to me at tbenson at heartland.org. That's T-B-E-N-S-O-N at heartland.org. And for more information about the Heartland Institute, you can just go to heartland.org. And you can also reach out to us on our Twitter account there. So if you have any questions, comments, or whatever, Feel free to reach out to us there. You know, send us a send us a DM, give us a follow. Our Twitter handle is at illbooks at i l l books. So yeah, just make sure you check that out. And uh, that's pretty much it. So thanks for listening, everyone. We'll see you guys next time. Take care. Love you, Robbie. Love you, Mom. Bye bye.